The following resources from Two Journeys. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God. Please visit twojourneys.org for more resources. Exodus 19, a, a magnificent chapter as Israel prepares to receive the old covenant at Sinai, the covenant at Sinai. And so we're coming to one of those great and central moments in redemptive history in which the law of Moses is given to the people of God. Chapter 19 is a chapter of preparation. And uh, as we prepare to study it, I want to read a scripture to you in the, Old, in the New Testament, in the book of Revelation, which I think connects very well with Exodus 19. Revelation 21, that we have heard many times before, but I want to focus on one word in particular. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and there was no longer any sea. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. And here's the word, prepared prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. You know, if you look at, at, at church history and really all of human history, you could really sum it up in that one word, preparation. We are being prepared to meet our spiritual husband. We're being made ready, as it were. We're being consecrated and sanctified and cleaned up, as it were, and gotten ready for our great and wonderful wedding day. It's a, it's a time of preparation, has been for thousands of years. And if we look at, at Exodus 19, we're going to see that same theme again. In effect, uh, similar to Amos chapter 4, verse 12, in which it says, And now prepare to meet your, your maker, O Israel. Prepare to meet your God. Uh, that's what it is. It's a chapter of preparation as they are about to meet with God. Now listen to the text, and we're not going to get to the whole thing, but as you listen, I want you to see two themes in particular that are, I think, central to the Old Covenant. One is the conditionality of the Old Covenant. There's a key little two-letter word, if. And we're going to see that in there. If you fully obey me, then all these good things will happen. We'll see the conditionality of the Old Covenant. We're also going to see that the essence of the Old Covenant is restriction and limitation and not free access to God. Now, we're not going to get to that second theme uh, tonight, but God willing, we'll look at it next week. But the first aspect I want you to see is conditionality. I'm going to read the whole chapter so it really fits together well, and then we'll zero in on the sections that we're going to look at tonight. Exodus 19, verse 1. In the third month after the Israelites left Egypt on the very day, they came to the desert of Sinai. After they had set out from Rephidim, they entered the desert of Sinai, and Israel camped there in the desert in front of the mountain. Then Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob, and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt, and how I carried you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant... Then, out of all the nations, you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. So Moses went back and summoned the elders of the people and set before them all the words the Lord had commanded him to speak. 
The people all responded together, We will do everything the Lord has said. So Moses brought their answer back to the Lord. The Lord said to Moses, I am going to, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud so that the people will hear me speaking with you and will always put their trust in you. Then Moses told the Lord what the people had said. And the Lord said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day, because on that day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, Be careful that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him. Whether man or animal, he shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning and a very loud trumpet blast. Everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God, and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Moses, uh, sorry, Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like smoke from a furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently, and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke, and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of Mount Sinai and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up, and the Lord said to him, Go down and warn the people so that they do not force their way through to see the Lord, and many of them perish. Even the priests who approach the Lord must consecrate themselves, or the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people cannot come up uh, Mount Sinai, because you yourself warned us, put limits around the mountain, and set it apart as holy. The Lord replied, Go down and bring Aaron up with you, but the priests and the people must not force their way through to come up to the Lord, or he will break out against them. So Moses went down to the people and told them. So we see in this chapter, especially in verses 1 through 15, a theme, prepare to meet your God. They are being consecrated, they're being gotten ready. But let's not forget the significance of what has already been accomplished. If you look at verse 1 through 4, we see that the people have been brought a long distance and through many trials and tribulations to the foot of Mount Sinai. This in every way fulfills the very promise that God had made to Moses back in the original calling. To, uh, put your finger here in Exodus 19 and look back at Exodus 3, 11 and 12. Exodus 3 is Moses' original call at the burning bush. And there, uh, there's an interchange between Moses and God. And uh, you know, at that point, as you remember, Moses was doing everything he could to get out of this mission. He did not want to go. You remember that. He was terrified of the Lord and of the burning bush, but he was also terrified to go back to Egypt and face the wrath of Pharaoh and all that it would take to bring the people up out of bondage. And so there's a, a, an interchange back and forth in which, in effect, God has to persuade Moses to take up this commission and go. In verse 11 and 12, it says, uh, Moses said to God, Who am I that I should go to Pharaoh and bring the Israelites out of Egypt? And God said, I will be with you. Now, don't forget what we said at that point. Notice that God does not answer Moses' question directly. 
You remember what Moses said. Who am I that I should do this great thing? And what is God's answer? I will be with you. Never forget that. The, the answer to the question is, it doesn't matter who you are. That's never been the issue. The issue is, who am I? I will be with you. I, I think that's so vital for us to remember. Whether we're going out witnessing or doing our, our spiritual gift ministry or doing anything in service to the Lord, the question should never be, who am I that I should do such and such? But rather, who is the Lord and has he called me to do this? And so that's the issue. Who am I that I should go? And God said, I will be with you. And now listen to this. He's, he wants to know what is the sign that you are sending me. Give me a sign. And you know, this is a recurring theme. Gideon wants the sign, and so he presses God actually for two signs. You know, the Gideon's fleece. Well, what is the sign? What is the sign that God himself has truly sent Moses? This is the sign, he says, uh, the sign to you that it is I who have sent you. When you have brought the people out of Egypt, you will worship God on this mountain. Now, of course, that's not going to do you much good up front, is it? Okay, in other words, you will know that I sent you when you succeed in bringing them out. Okay, now he gives him other signs, as you remember, when the staff turns into a serpent, when his hand uh, turns leprous and then uh, is cleansed again. And so he does enough to get him going. But he says, the real sign, the way you will know that it is I myself who sent you is when I finish the job of bringing you here to meet with God. And so it will be for all of you. All of you Christian people, you will know that it was God himself who set his love upon you when you see him face to face. When you are finished being saved, then you will know that God did it. And only that way will you be finished being saved. Isn't that true? You can't finish this work. It's too great for you. God is too holy and you're too sinful. And so it's only if God finishes this work in us, then we will know that it was God. And he will finish the work that he's begun in us. He's already promised to do that. But the final sign for us, just like it was for the Israelites at this time in redemptive history, you will know that it was Christ himself when you see God face to face in your resurrection bodies. And so it is. Everything has been fulfilled. Not one good promise has failed up to this point. Isn't that wonderful? These are the words of Joshua after they had conquered the promised land at the end of Joshua's life. Joshua 23:14. Joshua says at that point, Now I am about to go the way of all the earth. You know with all your heart and soul that not one of all the good promises the Lord your God gave you has failed. Every promise has been fulfilled. Not one has failed. Isn't that wonderful? I think we ought to take a moment and celebrate, even in our own journey in Exodus, they have finally come to the foot of Sinai. But we know that the redemptive historical march isn't finished when the people of God are brought to the foot of Sinai. Oh no, there's still a long way to go. They have to be given the old covenant and they have to break it repeatedly, again and again. There has to be the whole experimentation in the depths of wickedness and sin before we finally realize that there is no way we will ever be able to save ourselves. No way. And so we must have a new covenant. I'll discuss that later on in this message. But they are brought at last to Mount Sinai and it really should be a time of celebration. Now, of course, the Jews aren't celebrating much. They're complaining all the time. But how precious is it to look back and see what God has already achieved? The most, powerful, the most powerful nation on the face of the earth has been defeated. The Jews, the servants, the slaves of the Israelites have been vindicated. They have been saved in one sense. They have been brought through the Red Sea. And Pharaoh's mighty army, the most powerful on the face of the earth, is dead by the seashore. They also have been miraculously sustained and carried, as it were, through all of their trials up to this point. They have been fed miraculously with manna from heaven. 
Twice God has made water appear out of nowhere, as it were, and fed them uh, and, and quenched their thirst in a miraculous way. So God has already uh, fulfilled his promises. Psalm 145, verse 13, it says, Your kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and your dominion endures through all generations. The Lord is faithful to all his promises and loving toward all he has made. You can take God's promises to the bank. And in Jesus Christ, all of God's promises are yea and amen. He says yes to all of his promises through Christ. Psalm 119, verse 140, your promises have been thoroughly tested and your servant loves them. Now, in the journey they have made, in the third month now, it's been an eventful three months, hasn't it? A very difficult time, a very arduous journey, and in one sense far more difficult than originally described. If you look at what God said to Moses, you're perhaps still there in Exodus 3, it says in Exodus 3, verse 18, the elders of Israel will listen to you. Then you and the elders are to go to the king of Egypt and say to him, The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has met with us. Let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God. Moses and Aaron, speaking uh, to Pharaoh before the plagues began, in Exodus 5.3, they said, The God of the Hebrews has met with us. Now let us take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God or he may strike us with plagues or with a sword. And again, Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh after the plagues, Exodus 8:27, uh, we must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as he commanded. So three times, both from the mouth of God himself and Moses and Aaron to Pharaoh, it's a three-day journey. But now they're in the third month. They're in the third month. Now we already explained at that point, I think, God's ultimate purpose was not Sinai. It was the promised land. Ultimately, the three-day journey, I think, was to make uh, obvious how stubborn and obstinate was Pharaoh in his wickedness. You are to speak these words, he said. It's not in any way that it didn't take just three days to get to Sinai. I think it probably could have, they could have gotten there in three days. God intended in the end a longer journey. But rather he wanted to expose Pharaoh's wickedness and his hard-heartedness by calling it a three-day journey. But it's been three months now, and finally they come to Mount Sinai. Now, in the end... God makes the journey worthwhile, doesn't he? It's been a hard time, and it's been a hard journey. Do you think any of us are going to be up in heaven saying what a difficult journey it was to get here? You really think we're going to say that? And if we do, we're not going to, we're not going to say it with lamenting and with grief, but rather speaking a word of praise to the glory of God, that we have made it through all of the trials and tribulations of the Christian life here in this world, and in the end, the destination makes it all worthwhile. Jesus put it this way in John 16:21. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. I know at least one of you is waiting for that, Lori. Uh, any moment now. I was told uh, last week by Anna Kirk that my sermon put her into labor. So just keep listening, and who knows, it may be tonight. Uh, but in the end, you know, your joy is made full when you receive the gift of that child. And you can rejoice. Jesus is saying, yes, it's difficult to get to heaven. It's hard to be saved, isn't it? But in the end, uh, you can't even compare, Paul says in Romans 8, the sufferings of the journey for the joy that we will have in face-to-face -face fellowship with God. In Romans 8:18, he says, I, cons I consider that our present sufferings are not even worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. Now, in verses 3 and 4, we see God's sustaining grace. I'm back in Exodus 19 now. 
In Exodus 19, verse 3 and 4, it says, Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain and said, This is what you are to say to the house of Jacob and what you are to tell the people of Israel. You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, isn't that a majestic concept that God just, as it were, plucked Israel up out of bondage and carried them? They were just powerless. They're weak people with no power to stand before Pharaoh and no ability to survive that length of time in the desert. Absolutely weak and powerless. God plucked them up and carried them, as it were, on eagle's wings. Also notice what God is doing here. He is recounting salvation history such as it is up to that point. And so it is for us, I think, very vital that we constantly think about what God has done in the past to save us that we might be strengthened by a review of God's gracious acts to us in the past and raise up, as it were, an Ebenezer stone, a stone of help. Up to this point, I have been helped by grace. And so God will carry me all the way through. God is powerful and he is sovereign and he is tender as well. He carries us as on eagle's wings. Realize that your enemies, the enemies of your soul, are nothing compared to the sovereign grace of God. You know, I've been going through Psalms, doing my scripture memorization, and I was commenting to the kids as we, we also go through Psalms when we drive in the morning, and we're on Psalm 40, and here's David with his enemies again. Every Psalm, he seems to have enemies. And I think this is so consistent a theme in Psalms that I think there must be a spiritual significance for us. And I don't think it's wrong for us to realize that we have very powerful and bitter enemies of our soul surrounding us at every moment. The devil appeals to our fleshly nature and is constantly attacking us at our weakest places and at our weakest moments. So also we must recognize that God carries us, as it were, on eagle's wings through our lowest and weakest moments. He is not going to allow you to be tempted beyond what you can bear, and he will most certainly see you through this journey right to the end. So we see God's grace and his ability to destroy all of Israel's enemies. We also see the spiritual significance of this journey. Look at verse 4 again. It says, You yourselves have seen what I did to Egypt and how I carried you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. It's not really to Sinai that they're coming. Sinai is just a mountain. And we're going to see next week, God willing, how the sacredness of the mountain is only in that God is there. Once the loud trumpet blasts, the ram's horn sounds, they can go all over that mountain anytime they want. There's nothing special or sacred about it whatsoever. But when God is there, the place becomes sacred and special. The real issue is that God has brought them not to Sinai, but he's brought them to himself. I brought you to myself. Now, realize that these people, many of them, as Paul says, their bodies are scattered in the desert. I think they're not saved ultimately spiritually. They're not saved. They're rebels, most of them. How much more, then, are we brought to God himself through Christ? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The Father is our destination. He's what we're going to. We're going to see God. I look forward to that. It says in 1 Peter 3.18, For Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring you to God. And so he is also bringing us to God. Now, in verses 5 through 9, we see the preparation of the covenant. And we see that key word that I asked you to be heightened in your awareness of. Look at verse 5 and following. It says, Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak. 
to the Israelites. Stop there. Now, just like we're going to see in the Ten Commandments in Exodus 20, God begins by uh, identifying himself as the Lord who brought them out of Egypt. I am the Lord who brought you out of Egypt. And then he says, obey me fully all of my commands. These verses lay the groundwork for the giving of the covenant in uh, Exodus 20, the Ten Commandments. And this is what theologians call a conditional covenant. You see that little uh, two-letter word, if. If you obey me fully, then these good things will come. This is the essence of the Old Covenant, along with, as I'll talk about God willing next week, limitation of access to God. Barriers, literally barriers set up so that you cannot come into the presence of God. That is the essence also. But the conditionality, if you obey me, blessings for obedience and curses for disobedience. This is, in the end, the ultimate weakness of the Old Covenant. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31, uh, 31 through 34. Just put your finger here in Exodus 19. And we see predicted the downfall, the ultimate downfall of the Old Covenant, which God establishes here at Sinai. Jeremiah 31, 33, uh, 31 through 34. The time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. It will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they broke my covenant, though I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. This is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after that time, declares the Lord. I will put my law in their minds and write it on their hearts. I will be their God and they will be my people. No longer will a man teach his neighbor or a man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, because they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I'll forgive their wickedness and remember their sins no more. The essence of the Old Covenant here was that it was conditional and therefore breakable. And if you read the history of the Old Testament, the history of God's people in the Promised Land, what did they do but break the covenant? Again and again and again they violated this covenant. Here at the beginning, he says, now if you obey me fully, then you will be for me a treasured possession. That's a condition they could not meet. And it seems to me that one of the purposes of this conditional covenant in the Old Testament is to reveal the depth of our own wickedness. After all of God's goodness to Israel and all of his mighty power, and as we will see as you study in First and Second Samuel, and then if you were to continue a study into First and Second Kings and the overlap of First and Second Chronicles, you would see chronicled there or accounted there Israel's repeated rebellion and God's consistent mercy and long-suffering and patience toward this rebellious people. But right from the start, he laid the groundwork. He said, if you obey me fully, you will be my treasured possession. It was a condition they could not meet. Now, ironically, the first covenants that were made in the Bible were actually unconditional covenants. For example, the covenant made with Noah when he came off the ark. In Genesis 9, you don't have to turn there, you can read it later, but just listen to these verses. As Noah comes off the ark and is making a sacrifice to God, God speaks to Noah and says this, I establish my covenant with you. Never again will all life be cut off by the waters of a flood. Never again will there be a flood to destroy the earth. And then in verse 15 again of Genesis 9, I will remember my covenant between me and you and all living creatures of every kind. You see there, God makes his covenant with all creatures. And he says, never again will the waters of the, uh, become a flood to destroy all life. God's never going to do that again. Now, that is what we call an unconditional covenant. Do you see that? 
what, did, what were the animals required to do to uphold that covenant? Nothing. There's nothing required of the animals, and there's nothing required of human beings either. God is just saying, I'm making a covenant with you never again to destroy the all life by a flood. And he has kept that covenant and will most certainly keep that covenant. It's an it's a, it's a, uh, uh, unconditional or unidirectional covenant. We see the same thing, I think, hitting a little bit closer to home with the covenant that he makes with David. Now, at the time of making it, he doesn't call it a covenant, but it is so called later on. This is an uh, unconditional covenant that God makes with David. David, on the, at the time of his death, says in 2 Samuel 23:5, Is not my house right with God? Has he not made with me an everlasting covenant? So there's that word. The Hebrew word is bereath. Has he not cut an everlasting covenant with me, arranged and secured in every part? And will he not bring to fruition my salvation and grant my every desire? Yes, he will. But it's a, uh, an unconditional covenant. Uh, he speaks in the same way um, in 2 Chronicles 21.7. Nevertheless, because of the covenant the Lord had made with David, the Lord was not willing to destroy the house of David. Uh, he had promised to maintain a lamp for him and his descendants forever. Now, the covenant went like this. Uh, David had finished making his house. It was covered with cedar panels. He's smelling the aromatic cedar wood. And I'll tell you what. Cedar is very aromatic. I made a, a picture frame uh, for Christy for Christmas out of cedar. And the whole house smelled like cedar for probably a week after that. It doesn't smell that way anymore. But it's a nice aroma, isn't it? Very pleasant. Well, David's surrounded by freshly cut cedar panels. And I think he's just overwhelmed with guilt. He's saying, here I am in this beautiful cedar paneled palace. And the ark of God is in a tent. Now, there's something that just isn't right about that. Well, Nathan the prophet at that point, just speaking of himself, I think, says, well, do whatever... Whatever's in your heart, for God is with you. But then God speaks to Nathan the prophet and says, Go back and tell my servant this. Are you the one to build a house for me? I've been in a tent from generations past. Now you're the one to build the lasting uh, house for me? No, but rather your son will be the one to have that privilege. But let me tell you something, David, while we're on the topic of building houses. No, rather I will be the one who will build a house for you. And I will build for you an everlasting house. This is what he says. Tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture. Remember what you were. You were a shepherd boy. Without a promising future, I can assure you. I took you from the pasture and from following the flock <laughs> to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. Now I will make your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth, and I will provide a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed leaders over my people Israel. I will also give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. Isn't that incredible? You wanted to build me a house, I'm going to build you a house. And he didn't mean a physical house. He's already sitting in a very nice physical house. That wasn't the issue. I'm going to build you a lineage. I'm going to build you a, a, a kingdom that will last from generation to generation. When your days are over and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. Now, who is he talking about there? Well, immediately Solomon, of course, who built the shadow, which was the physical temple. But ultimately, who was it that built the house for the name of God? Was it not Jesus Christ? 
Jesus is building the true house of God, which is the people of God, the spiritual temple, in which God lives by his spirit. So I will raise up, David, for you, a son out of your own body. He will be called the son of David. He will also be called the son of God. And he will build the house for me. Again, it, this is an unconditional covenant. And in that unconditional covenant, I find my salvation. And you find yours too. It was a covenant made with David that God would raise up a descendant from David and he would give his people safe pasture forever and ever. His kingdom would never end. Well, you could imagine David being overwhelmed with this promise. He says, is this your usual way of dealing with men? That's an interesting statement. No, there are two ways that God deals with men. One of them is a conditional covenant like this one. If you obey me fully, then you will be for me a treasured possession. And the other is the unconditional covenant in which I find my salvation, the new covenant in Jesus Christ. The covenant has conditions. It's just they've all been met through Christ. If Jesus would die for me, then I will have eternal life. Well, he's done that, and he has secured for me uh, eternal life. The new covenant is spoken of again and again in the book of Hebrews. We don't need to go through all those verses. But it says the ministry in Hebrews 8, 6, Jesus has received is as superior to theirs, the Aaronic priests, as the covenant of which he is mediator is superior to the old one, and it is founded on better promises. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Now, what is a mediator? Well, we see it right here in Exodus 19. Do you see Moses almost like a ping pong ball? Go up to the mountain and talk. Go back down to the people and say what they said. Bring the people's answer back up to God. Back and forth he goes. He is the mediator, the go-between. He is, in effect, like a priest for the people, bringing the words of the people up to God, bringing God's words back to the people. He is the mediator of a covenant. It's a conditional covenant. It's an inferior covenant. It's the old covenant. He is the mediator of the old covenant. Jesus is the mediator of the new covenant. And it's a better covenant, the author of Hebrews says. The old covenant is obsolete and aging and will soon disappear, words of Hebrews. But this new covenant, it will last forever. And Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant. Aren't you glad you are not saved in a conditional covenant? Do you think you could meet the conditions? This is one of the things I share with, when I witness with people who say that churches are filled with hypocrites. I say, please tell me, what is a hypocrite? Somebody who doesn't live up to their standards. I said, I would urge you to write out ten standards for your life. And just take note of yourself to see if you live up to those standards over the next year. Whether it's a matter of kindness or speaking patiently or giving generously to charities or whatever ten things you come up with. We have the ten commandments and I think it would be hard to improve on that. But whatever it is, make up your own law and see if you can live up to it. The fact is we're all covenant breakers. And so I am grateful that we have moved out of the old covenant with its conditionality. If you obey me fully, you will be for me a treasured possession. And we come into the new covenant where Christ has obeyed God fully and therefore I get saved. Isn't that magnificent? That is the new covenant. That's what we have. Now look at the remarkable promises that are made here. If you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all nations you will be my treasured possession. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words you are to speak to the Israelites. That's verse 5 through 7. So he makes a magnificent promise. First of all, he says, you will be my treasured possession. I will treat you like the apple of my eye. You will be precious to me. You will be like a treasure to me. You will be valuable. Uh, that's rather amazing when you consider that it's God speaking to the Jewish people. 
But that's the way he saw them. They would be his treasured possession. A reciprocal relationship because who is Israel's treasure but God himself? God is Israel's treasure and Israel is God's treasure. And then he says, out of all the nations on the earth you will be a treasure possession. He says in verse 5 and 6, he says, although the whole earth is mine, you will be for me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. God is not needy. He didn't need the Jews and he doesn't need you and me either. He says, I own the whole earth. In another place he says, I own the cattle on a thousand hills and I don't need your sacrifices. You know, the devil lied to Jesus when he said, the earth is mine and I can give it to anyone I want to. Didn't God say here in this verse, the whole earth is mine? Has that been revoked? Is the earth now the devil's? Oh, I don't think so. I think he's just a liar. He misunderstood his, his rule and his reign. He's been given certain freedom to roam on the surface of the earth and create havoc and distress. But the whole earth is not in any way his. Here God claims and puts his banner over the whole earth as his own. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, it says in Psalm 27. For he made it, he founded it upon the seas and established upon the water. He said, the whole thing is mine and all the nations are mine, but you will be for me a treasured possession. And then he calls them a kingdom of priests. Uh, we Baptists cherish the concept of the priesthood of believers, right? Or the priesthood of the believer. But here he calls the Jews a kingdom of priests. There will be a royal priesthood in effect. Now, what is this priesthood? I think it's an old covenant priesthood at this point. Their priestly ministry, the priestly ministry was entrusted to the Levites and ultimately the house of Aaron. But they did have a priestly duty to proclaim the good news about God the Savior to the ends of the earth. It says in Psalm 911, sing praises to the Lord enthroned in Zion and proclaim among the nations what he has done. Our God is a sovereign God and the Jews should have proclaimed among the nations that he was a mighty saving God. So they would be, for him, a kingdom of priests. And then finally, they would be separate unto, unto God, a holy nation. Holy, separated from the wicked people around them. They would be his own. Now, I find it interesting that these are the very same promises made to us in 1 Peter 2. In 1 Peter 2, 9, it says, of Gentiles, of Gentile believers. Now, see if you can hear the similarities. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. Do you hear that? It's the exact same promises made here at the foot of Sinai to the Jews. We are his people. We have not supplanted the Jews. We have been grafted into these very promises that were made in uh, Exodus 19. Well, in the rest of the verses, it says that they are to prepare and get themselves ready. In verses 9 through 15, after Moses communicates and sets all of these things, the people say very plainly, we will do everything that God has commanded. Isn't that encouraging? Oh, we have such great hopes for the future. Did you know that I am holy and blameless in my own future? As I look ahead to my future, I see myself being perfect. And I don't necessarily think that that's a bad thing. I know that my sin nature is strong and powerful. But I don't wake up thinking, I'm going to be wretchedly sinful today. I really am. I'm just going to be a, I'm going to be a disaster area today. No, I get up thinking I'm going to obey God today. I'm going to obey him fully. And so also the people, as they're looking ahead to the future, everything that God has said, we will certainly obey. We will do it all. Joshua does the same thing with the people. says, no, no, no. Joshua says, no, you can't obey him because you're wicked and he's holy. Oh, no, no, we will. We promise. And he said, all right, then make a covenant. Make a co commitment before God. Oh, we will. We promise. Oh, my goodness. Next comes the book of Judges, and we see how well they hold that promises, those promises. We are a wicked people, but yet we are so holy in our own future, aren't we? We think we're going to be perfect the rest of the time. And so they say, oh, everything that God has said, we will most certainly obey. And so 
Moses communicates, and God says, I'm going to come to you in a dense cloud, and all the people will hear me speaking, and they will trust you. And so they did. Moses was their mediator. In verses 9 through 15, we see the consecration of the people as they get themselves ready for the next day. Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Have them wash their clothes and be ready by the third day. Because on the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all people. Put limits for the people around the mountain and tell them, be careful that you do not go up to the mountain or touch the foot of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. He shall surely be stoned or shot with arrows. Not a hand is to be laid on him, whether man or animal. He shall not be permitted to live. Only when the ram's horn sounds a long blast may they go up to the mountain. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them, and they washed their clothes. And then he said to the people, prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relations. Now we're going to talk, God willing, next week about the limits that were put around the mountain and what they signify and what they show about us. But I want to leave this final uh, picture with you. They had to get themselves ready. They had to clean themselves up. They had to wash themselves. This is the old covenant picture of a people trying to get themselves ready to meet a holy God. In the end, we were washed, we were sanctified, and we were renewed by the blood of Christ. And that's the only thing that can really prepare us to meet our God. Thank you for listening to this resource from twojourneys.org. Feel free to use and share this content to spread the knowledge of God and build His kingdom. Only we ask that you do so for non-commercial purposes and in accordance with the copyright policy found at twojourneys.org. Two Journeys exists to help Christians make progress in the two journeys of the Christian life, the internal journey of sanctification and the external journey of gospel advancement. We do this by exporting biblical teaching for the good of Christ's church and for the glory of God.